The following audio-supported podcast is intended for informational and educational purposes only and is not intended as medical advice. Please speak with your healthcare professional before making any treatment decisions. The guests on today's show were paid to participate in this podcast. Dr. Mike, how are you doing? Good. How are you doing, Dr. Z? I'm doing great, man. The last time we recorded a Cheat Codes in person, I can't even remember. I think it's been years. It this has, is exciting. It's definitely and, been a few years. And at Ash, and at we have Ash, a great guest. We have the guest. We have the guest we've been waiting for. I feel like this podcast was built for our guest today. Let's get to it. Let's make it happen. So, Cheat Codes listeners, we have spent a lot of time talking about patients. We spent a lot of time talking about the people who care for patients. Today, we've got the honor and the privilege of spending some time with somebody who not only takes care of many patients, but takes care of patients in the place where sickle cell disease is the main character. It's everything. This is not an American KOL. This is not American sickle cell physician. Today, we're talking to a sickle cell expert from Nigeria. Dr. Anodu, welcome to Cheat Coats. Welcome, welcome. Thank you very much. I'm pleased to be here. It is truly our honor and privilege to have you here today. And we are so, so excited to spend some time learning about sickle cell disease in Nigeria, to learn a little bit about what the patients go through day to day, and what hopefully we can accomplish as we work on getting cheat codes out in Nigeria. How fun is that? <laughs> That's something that I'm looking forward to. Tell us a little bit about yourself. Okay. So, um, Obiageli Nodu. I'm a professor of hematology and blood transfusion, and I work at the University of Abuja. I also work at the University of Abuja Teaching Hospital in Abuja. That's the capital city in yeah. Nigeria. I'm the director of a center of excellence for sickle cell disease research and training. And I'm also the principal investigator for a number of major sickle cell studies in sub-Saharan Africa. One is the Sickle Pan-African Research Consortium, where we are. So I'll tell you a little bit about that, but this is a six-country consortium. Yeah. If we add South Africa, it will be seven. Wow. And then that project has been going on for the last five years. It's NIH funded. Beautiful. And it was meant to build the infrastructure for future research in sickle cell disease. In terms of having a, a single patient consented registry, yeah. in the first phase, we had 13,000 patients across the consortium. 13,000? Uh, six, yes, six uh, from Nigeria. And in the second phase, we are aiming to contribute 34,000 patients in six countries. Wow. Wow. So my uh, network has uh, contributed over 8,300 patients from the 34 assets last week. So that we are is a really, lot of work. <laughs> so we're very happy about that. So that's one of the studies. The other one, which is very new, is funded by the UK DFID, and that is the patient-centered management of sickle cell disease in sub-Saharan Africa wow. that is in three countries, Nigeria, Ghana, and Tanzania. I'm yeah. the co-PI for that one. Then we have another one, which is funded by the American Society of Hematology Consortium for Newborn Screening in Africa. So in that one, 
we are screening between 10,000 to 16,000 babies every year with sickle cell disease in seven African countries. In order to demonstrate to African countries that it's feasible to do newborn screening, so another one is the Sickle Cell Genomics Network of Africa, which is a three-country consortium, Ghana, Nigeria, Tanzania, headed by Professor Ofori Akwa from University of Ghana. So for that one, we have 7,000 patients with Sickle Cell disease wow. cohorts, and it's mostly genomics to see how the genes that are involved in protection of patients from hemolysis as an adaptive response. So that's, we have finished gathering the data for that and we're in the process of doing the GWAS. So those are some of the studies, apart from pilot studies and student studies and all that. So this is the context in which I work. So it's pretty much research in intensive now you know, with all of this work. So we're now going into the area of uh, clinical trials. So that's where you come in. (laughs) That's where we come in. Absolutely. The amount of work that you've just described in literally four minutes is immense. And it is truly quite an undertaking. You know, one of the things for guests who come on our podcast, one of the things I really like to talk about is your story. How did Dr. Nodu become Dr. Nodu? Where does the story of your sickle cell career actually start? When did you know you wanted to be a physician and then a sickle cell physician? When did you know that this was the path you wanted to take? I want to hear that story a little bit. Yeah, that's, that's very interesting. I didn't really set out to be a physician if anything, I set out to be a veterinary doctor. Wow. <laughs> because I grew up in a veterinary research institute in Vorm in Nigeria, one of the best places to live in the world. So they didn't have veterinary medicine in my university, so I ended up like second best option. <laughs> <laughs> Focus on one species. Second best, <laughs> and, and I did uh, human medicine. But having done that, I always had an interest in pathology, and um, but I didn't like the morbid parts. You know, yeah. the uh, yeah. So I settled for hematology because I was very good in microscopy. I loved looking at the microscope, and then I also wanted to be seeing patients. So I settled, you know, for hematology, clinical hematology that would give me the chance of bedside medicine and also the laboratory aspects. So I trained as a hematologist during the residency training. The first thing I noticed was that I wasn't able to save a lot of patients. Right. Because of the patients that had malignancies. And you would pour out your heart looking after them. And it was always not a very good outcome. So that was not good for me as a young consultant. But I noticed that the patient with sickle cell disease, they did okay. Yeah. So when you gave them the treatment and you talked to them, they would survive and they would thrive. Yeah. One of the things I also on this journey to becoming a sickle cell disease doctor with interest in sickle cell disease was that in the first hospital where I worked, that was at the National Orthopedic Hospital, would be again one of the best hospitals that, you know, it was patient-centered, 
very caring community. I set out to address some of the challenges I saw, whether it was in blood transfusion, lack of transfusion support for the uh, trauma patients, whether it was making diagnosis of patients with bone tumors, believe me, because you can tell from the clinical details as well as from radiology to a, a high degree of accuracy if it was a bone tumor. So right. the minute the patients got that diagnosis, they will go away. So the surgeons were not able to have tissue diagnosis of bone tumors. So I had done some trainings at Imperial College and at Karolinska Institute. And I set up a fine needle aspiration cytology service that helped us to overcome that barrier and, and to do really good bone tumor work and diagnosis that was really good. So along the way, I went to, my husband was transferred to the capital city and we left Lagos to go to Abuja. So it was when I got to Abuja that I started the work on um, sickle cell disease as a research. Because before I was a clinician, I could do work, I could improve the service, I could introduce new tests and all of that. I could teach the other healthcare workers, develop a curriculum for blood transfusion. But in the university, I needed to have a research focus. And it happened. I was called to it. Wow. Yes. Wow. That's an interesting way in. So it was really sort of the microscopy and the science of the disease yeah, that yeah. attracted you to hematology. Oh, and yeah, then, yeah, yeah. Absolutely. And, and then, I think I have a gift of pattern recognition in it. That is a it's huge a, gift. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's one of my favorite things, actually, looking at blood smears. It oh, seems so oh, odd. Okay, the same? <laughs> yeah. Okay. <laughs> he, yeah, you're, nice. and you're quite good at that. Okay. I don't know. Oh. It's so interesting, you know? Yeah. Agios is a biopharmaceutical company that's fueled by connections with patient communities, healthcare professionals, patients, and each other. Building on these connections and the company's unmatched leadership in the field of cellular metabolism, Agios is pioneering therapies of genetically defined diseases, a broad group of rare and more common diseases that are typically severe and life-threatening. Near-term, Agios is focusing on hemolytic and acquired anemias, including sickle cell disease, pyruvate kinase, or PK deficiency, and thalassemia. To learn more, visit agios.com. That's A-G-I-O-S dot com. I was fascinated in medical school, just look, see the colors. And, and I like it when the students come to the lab, they're doing their rotation, and they go from not knowing anything to, oh, I can see that. So, you know, yeah. I want to. I'm curious about students, for example, when they're going through their medical training or when you're going through your subspecialty training, how much do Nigerian medical students talk about sickle cell? Oh, that, yeah, it's their bread and butter. <laughs> it's, it's very much, you can't do any exam without coming across sickle cell, whether so you're in okay. ONG, you know, whatever specialty, you've got to deal with it. It's very prevalent. So it's something that's top of mind when they're training, they have to think about sickle cell often. Yes, yes. That's very different from the United States. Oh, in the United States, we don't have that oh. that type of attention oh, to sickle cell. Okay. I think that's a very interesting point for our listeners. Oh. 
Yeah, I, I think, you know, it depends where you train in the U.S. There are places where there are a lot of sickle cell patients. And yeah. You're going to get some training in sickle cell, but not, not a lot. But it seems like the scale of things in Nigeria is just totally different. How many people are in Abuja? Yeah, the population has exploded in recent years, about 2.5 million. Wow. And how many people with sickle cell disease? Oh, we can't count them because we don't have a screening program yeah. yet where you're screening all the babies and you can tell yeah. um, that these are the ones that have sickle cell disease but the ones that um, in the program that we have had for the past two years and we're trying to get to many primary healthcare centers 22 we have screened about uh, 10,000 and we have about one percent wow yeah, which is not what we expected. We expected higher prevalence. Yeah. Wow. One percent is pretty high, though. No, it's but not. It's, it's because uh... yeah, the the range that we have from the demographic survey is from point nine to two percent. So depending oh. on the place in the country. So if Abuja is a uh, enlightened, educated population, maybe that is why the prevalence is not as high as some parts of the country. Wow. So people know ahead of time that they're sickle cell carriers. And, yeah, yeah. And they're, they're beginning to do something about it. Like um, the southeastern part of the country, the prevalence is 0.3%. 3%. 0.3%. Oh, 0.3. Wow. 0.3%. You know, yesterday we were... All of us were at the coalition meeting yeah. talking about advancing the global agenda for sickle cell disease. One of the things that I think stuck out to me personally was sort of we've talked about this idea of understanding how many sickle cell patients there are in the African subcontinent. Mm -hmm. But I was talking to Mike and I was saying, you know, Mike, we don't even know how many patients there are in America with sickle cell disease. We talk about this number of 100,000 all the being, time. Being born, right? Or we know about the patients who are born with yeah. newborn screening. But actually, this number of 100,000 patients in the United States, I feel like it's been around for 20, <laughs> 30 <laughs> years. We've been using the same number, but we don't actually really know how many patients there are with sickle cell disease yeah. in the United States. Yeah. So I can only imagine that in a place like Abuja or... I'm from the Indian subcontinent. There, we certainly don't have an idea of how much of an issue sickle cell disease may be. I want to get a sense from you about the care for sickle cell disease in Abuja currently. What does it look like? Is there, if you're a sickle cell disease, if you're a patient with sickle cell disease in Nigeria, in Abuja specifically, do you have access to good sickle cell care? Does everybody have access to good sickle cell care? Or is it something that may not be the case, depending on where you live? Yeah. Okay. So I think to answer that, I'll just describe a little bit the health system in Nigeria. So you have the primary health care centers, that's in the public sector. And then you have the district hospitals, and then you have the reference hospitals. So the primary health care centers are in each local government, different, you know, a number of PHCs in each local government. And then you have the district hospitals, one in each zone, local government. And then you have two tertiary hospitals. One is in the city of Abuja. That's the city itself. And then 
my teaching hospital is a little bit in one of the districts a little bit away in fact 52 kilometers from the capital so but that is the major reference hospital so healthcare is purchased by the patients privately there is beginning to be access to health insurance but it's not everything that they pay for just like in any other places then you have the private hospitals whether they are maternity homes or big hospitals that you know you pay absolutely private they have a number of those so uh, the patients have access and then one thing we don't realize is that the pharmacy shops right they are also giving some kind of primary health care oh, to the patients yes because they will people will go there they Maybe the I said doctor or maybe the pharmacist is, you know, but those services are there at those levels. So in terms of access, it depends on where the patients live. I know that the number of patients we are seeing in our hospitals, you know, just like a little bit of a tip of the iceberg, because I know patients with sickle cell disease that are not in the hospital. You see them in the community, you can tell that they have sickle cell disease. And when you ask them where they are going, they say, well, you know, is it not uh, folic acid and paludrine, you know, where we don't really want to. So we are working on trying to bridge that gap by going to the communities to sensitize and to screen patients and to try and mobilize the patients to come to the hospital. So that access depends on the patient's pocket because if they cannot afford the, to pay for the consultation, they would not be able to come to the clinic. So you may see people who are registered in the clinics, but they may not be going there maybe more than twice a year or maybe once a year. So that is um, right. about access. Access is dependent on your ability to pay. It's not a free service. Wow. But the people are there, the uh, hospitals, the healthcare uh, facilities are there for the patients if they, if they want, wow. if they can afford. Wow. So for my own learning, you have a really good understanding of sickle cell disease and like what it looks like in, for example, the United States. If you were to talk to our listeners and you were to tell them about the big differences between sickle cell care in a place like New Orleans versus Abuja, mm -hmm. what would you highlight as the biggest challenges in those geographic regions as as being different what are the okay. big challenges yeah. for sickle cell in, okay. in nigeria yeah i actually used to have a slide if, uh, for medical students that touches about this you know what the outlook is for a patient that is born in europe and america you know who has sickle cell disease uh, the kind of care that they expect to have or they have access to they would have their immunizations they would have the pneumococcal vaccines, you know, the PCV23, they would have all of those immunizations paid for. Then they would expect to have uh, their yearly uh, Doppler ultrasound. They will expect to have all of their monitoring going on, you know, seamlessly. If they have TIAs, they would have the full spectrum of radiological imaging and all of that. But that is not available to patients in Africa. That level of care particularly chronic blood transfusion therapy, they don't have that. In as much as the blood transfusion is completely 
where we don't have how will I describe it now? You know, when you have voluntary blood remunerated donor, we don't have that system. So we have a relative replacement. That means that the patients have to source the blood if they needed blood for an acute event. They have to go and find the donors. They have to get that because the blood is not there in the blood bank. So that system, that access to a life-saving measure like blood transfusion is not as available to our patients as they are. And that is very, very important because that's a disease-modifying therapy. Also, access to hydroxyurea and access to newer molecules, they are not available for the patients. Access to clinical trials are not available for patients. So the patients in uh, your country would expect with all of these evidence-based interventions like a newborn screening, like pneumococcal vaccines, you know, penicillin prophylaxis and hydroxyurea, all of those interventions would expect to live. And then, of course, you know, screening them for risk of stroke annually. And if there is any problem, they can put them on a chronic blood transfusion service. So those patients would expect to live long, maybe into their fifth decade which is very different from patients in Africa. First of all, they don't know that they have sickle cell disease and they may die in infancy. Or even if they are diagnosed, the patient, the parents may not be able to take them to care, to get care. Or maybe when they are into care, some people who don't know any better can come and dissuade the In fact, one of the problems that we are noticing is the denial by mothers of newborn babies with sickle cell disease that the babies have sickle cell because they say, my baby looks all right. There's nothing wrong with it because they've never seen a newborn that has sickle cell disease. People are familiar with babies or children who manifest the symptom, not the ones who identified at birth as we are beginning to do. So the outlook for a patient with sickle cell disease in sub-Saharan Africa is very different from that in Europe and America in terms of the sheer number of interventions that are available that they can have, which are not available for the others. And so in sub-Saharan Africa, the the patients will manifest with more of the morbidities that are associated with sickle cell. You understand? So like leg ulcers, you know, like hip necrosis, you know, severe anemia. With newborn screening demonstration project you guys are working on, are you able to provide those kids the pneumococcal vaccines and the penicillin and get them into hydroxyurea? Okay, so yeah, let's see. Yeah, that's a very interesting question because the part that is being supported is the screening. That's it. The other parts, we are struggling to provide like the interventions. But part of the um, condition for coming on the program is that you have to demonstrate that you have access to penicillin, that you have access to the immunization as in your primary national immunization program but that is for the first one the follow-up vaccines the patients have to buy it themselves do you understand yeah okay yeah wow how much would something like that cost is it like a month's wages a day's wages we actually try to work out what it would cost for health maintenance for a year it's is 
less than a hundred dollars for all the tests and the drugs and all that. Is that something that in the middle term is going to be affordable for the public health service? Mm. The, the wage is low. So, you know, one of the things going away from sort of this topic and talking a little bit about, you know, the reason once when we started cheat codes, one of the major reasons was because we were starting to feel that patients were getting information from a lot of places and not necessarily having access to good information, up-to-date information, reasonable and thoughtful information. And the thought was, you know, I could be in clinic and I could say, hey, if you want to learn about hydroxyurea, I could talk to you about hydroxyurea for an hour, but I don't have an hour. Instead, why don't you go listen to episode number three, where we talk about hydroxyurea in a lot of detail and get your information from there. Sometimes I think that the problem of trusting doctors and trusting clinical trials is a big issue, certainly in America. I'm curious, in Nigeria, how is the flow of information from the doctors to the patients? Do patients have access to good information? Mm -hmm. Do they trust in their physicians? Do they trust in the medical system? Or are you guys having the same issues that we're having in America, mm. where patients are not really necessarily trusting of the medical system? So that's very interesting. And uh, that's one of the things that we have tried to work on in my clinic. I try to see the patients when I'm in the clinic. I try to see them first, because in that session, it helps me to do a proper history and it helps me to talk to the patients about the disease yeah. and to outline the management. After that, anybody can apply the standard guideline and manage them. But that first consultation, I think it's mine. So I try as much as possible. So we have a program whereby before the patients come to see us, we are showing like videos, some information to them. So that uh, they can, you know, come into the clinic is also a learning opportunity for them. And then provides a little bit of interaction amongst themselves and gives them the opportunity to ask us questions before the actual consultation. Because there's a lot of waiting going on. So we have a corner in that outpatient where we project videos and wow. uh, we talk to them. We also have, there's a book. It's a parent's handbook okay. for under fives and then for those up to age of 16. And the nurse would take that and read portions of it also, you know, to them. So it gives them the opportunity to ask questions. Then they have um, the nurses and some of myself, they have it with the patients. So it helps them. They discuss different problems, different manifestations or aspects of sickle cell disease. It can be preapism, it can be stigma, it can be depression, you know, different as as the need arises. So it helps them to bond in that way and to ask questions. Oh that's great. That's do great. do all of the patients have smartphones? A lot of patients have smartphones. Pretty much all of them. I think they like to watch the videos. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> they like to watch the videos so well, it certainly sounds like you've got a really nice setup to get information to patients. And that's, I think for me, certainly that's been critical in the last few years is 
especially as these new clinical trials, these new therapies with different mechanisms of action come around. It's important to be able to help get that message to patients. So I'm glad to hear that you're putting a lot of effort, it sounds like, into making sure patients have access to information. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's very important because if you don't tell them well enough for them to understand, then when they go out, others will unteach them. Yeah. For instance, there was a patient. The mother is a nurse. And she was placed on hydroxyurea with us and she was doing well. Then she went to live in another town. In that hospital, the pediatricians, they know about hydroxyurea and they are using it. But the adult hematologists dissuaded her not to use hydroxyurea. And would you believe? And then she stopped. Wow. And then she didn't uh, make it. Wow. And she was doing well while she was on the hydroxyurea. So that information is not available to everyone, but we need, and we and we found that in a cohort of 8,000 patients that less than 17% of them were on hydroxyurea. Wow. So which is really... That's adults and kids or adults? Yeah, both. 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 Do you have any partners in this. In Detroit, we have the Sickle Cell Disease Association chapter, and it's a patient organization. And they do such a great job. They run the newborn screening, they educate patients, they have health workers who go out to all different parts of our state and meet with people. Do you have anything like that? Do you have Mm -hmm. patient organizations or groups that are working on sickle cell inside of the hospital setting? So we have the Sickle Cell Support Society of Nigeria, and this is a base, you know, it has what we call geopolitical spread because we have six zones in the country and we have people and healthcare workers and hospitals that are affiliated to this that are in each of the zones. We have zonal coordinators, and uh, but mostly it's uh, sensitization awareness around sickle cell, World Sickle Cell Day celebrations, advocacy at grassroots, and also multidisciplinary and multi-center research studies that we go. The focus is on research and then uh, advocacy and patient education as well. Wow. So we have that. And, and so different sickle cell disease organizations belong to this. So there are parents there, there are patients, and then there are NGOs sure. who yeah. are part of that big, it's a big network. Okay, that's great to hear. So, you know, we've covered a lot of information and we're coming towards sort of the the end of the podcast. One of the things I really want to hear from you is what are you looking forward to in sickle cell disease in Nigeria over the next five years, 10 years? Where do you hope sickle cell disease ends up in Nigeria by the end of your career? What is your vision? Mm, End of my career. Which is a long way, a a long way away. No, I don't think so. I yeah, because I'm getting almost to the end of it now. Putting quite a lot already in. Yeah. yeah. So basically, we have spent the last ten years building the infrastructure, getting organized, establishing a good relationship with the government, having a standard guidelines for the treatment of sickle cell disease, multi-level guidelines 
educating, building the skills, you know, for healthcare workers to manage uh, sickle cell disease patients, also building the skills and research. We've done a lot of that. One of the things I'm really or that has been a motivating factor to me when we were building the infrastructure, setting up this disease registry, is to prepare for clinical trials. Because I know that with clinical trials, patients are exposed to the molecules, uh, new molecules that are, you know, people are bringing. It will not just be that we are hearing about them or reading about them, but that our patients can have access to those. So that has been a motivation for me and it's beginning to happen. Because people are now knocking on doors and it's so easy to do feasibility because you don't have to go and look at your stack of pay. You know, you we have records now. Yeah. We can pull out. We know we have phenotyped our patients, right? So we know how many. So it makes it a little bit easier. And then we've also trained ourselves, you understand, to pre-qualify as it were. You know, we are training our staff and that is happening not just in my center, but it's happening in these 25 clinical centers that are poised to be a part of this. As we, are. In fact, um, I know that in the future, it will be very, will be the destination, right? for clinical trial because the people are highly skilled. You know, Nigeria is exporting manpower, medical, right, uh -huh, right. across the world. Yeah. And they go out and they are doing well. So you have more where that came from. They are right in the country. It's highly resourced, highly skilled. Because as we compare ourselves to other people around the continent, or as we work, we see that the numbers of specialists are more you know, within the country. So where I see ourselves going is in that direction of more clinical trials that my patients will be able to have access and will be able to bridge the gap between what patients can access in our setting and what they can access abroad. Right. And then to continue to do advocacy and to have legislation that would be for the patient's benefit because I know that some of the measures or the progress here has been as a result of informed legislation. Uh, when the newborn screening was, you know, it was as a result of legislation. And so I know that. Uh, so we are also hoping that that would happen. And uh, more importantly, that education of healthcare workers would happen in a way that the patients with sickle cell disease do not necessarily have to go to the big hospitals, but that those ones in the primary healthcare centers would be able to provide, you know, good care using standard guidelines. So these are some of the things that I'm hoping, you know, we'll see her. And then, of course, curative treatment, which I have been given that task to put the framework for curative or the policy and a framework for curative treatment for sickle cell disease in Africa. It's certainly a beautiful vision, and I'm really excited mm -hmm. to see where we end up in the next 5, 10, 20 years in, in sickle cell, specifically in Africa. And a little biased, I also want to see where we end up in the Indian subcontinent, too. Of course, of too. course, of course. Um, I think it's going to be an important decade, I think. Absolutely, yeah, because if the groundwork has been done, so it's now to build on it. 
Absolutely. That, that's a huge accomplishment already. I mean, we look at Nigeria as the place to go do clinical trials because oh, yeah. yeah. you guys have great yeah. physicians, staff, well put together centers and patients who are interested in participating. So. Oh, yes. So. Yes. Oh, the patients are lovely. They are, <sighs> they are so, yeah, they are very engaging. They are very optimistic. They have the can-do attitude. They are living in living well as a way surmounting the obstacles and yeah yeah i you know this is a podcast it's an audio podcast but mm -hmm. for the listeners while dr Inodu's talking about patience she has a big smile on her face right now <laughs> i think that's important for people to know is okay that's how we feel about patients oh yes right absolutely it's, that's the best part of the job yeah 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 absolutely uh, that's wonderful dr mike We've had a really nice conversation with Dr. Inodu. Yeah, uh, this was so great. We would love to have you back sometime. I uh, <laughs> I learned a ton. And it was a I fun, want you to come to, to Nigeria. We, are, we, we will. We are planning to be there. That's something that in the next year, I will make sure oh, that we end up oh, in Abuja. coming okay. to visit you specifically yes, in Abuja. Great. And um, I would love to have some of this on site. Yes. Yeah. That would, yeah. be, that would be wonderful. Yeah, the patients would love it. Cheat Codes listeners, thank you for hanging with us as we've gone on this journey to Nigeria virtually with Dr. Nodu. And please remember to share this podcast episode with anybody who you think could benefit from hearing her voice and hearing her message. Thanks so much. 